I read in the news the other day about another couple that's splitting up, and it always grieves me when I hear that. But this one really surprised me. I didn't see this one coming. This couple that I read about in the news seemed just made for each other. They seemed so compatible. They shared so many things in common, and they'd had such a long long relationship. Ordinarily, you think when people have been together for that long, they're not going to make it, but this couple split up. Uh, This was in the news. You may have seen it three weeks ago. After a long, long partnership, in fact, they had been together for 115 years. And even after all that time, they split up. And of course, I'm talking about Bibi and Poldy. The two turtles in the Austrian zoo. Did you see that in the, in the news? They, they split up after 115 years. I, I guess we should have seen it coming because Bibi, that's the girl turtle, started biting the shell of Poldy. And that's always a bad sign in a relationship. Always a bad sign. In fact, she got so aggressive and so ugly tempered toward her husband, that they had to split them up. And after 115 years, their relationship is over. Now that, we kind of laughing at that because it is kind of ridiculous, but it, it serves as an introduction to my lesson today because I want to talk about what God has joined together. The marriage is the foundation of the home, and we are going currently through a divorce epidemic. I have been shocked and saddened over my lifetime to see the number of divorces steadily climb. And you often hear this figure. You hear that half of all marriages will end in divorce. And that's a pretty sobering statistic, except it's not exactly true. Now, half of all marriages, roughly, do end in divorce. But if you break it down, it kind of works out like this. Of first marriages, about 41% are going to break up over the course of their lifetime. About two out of five. Out of second marriages, that is to say they've divorced and they remarry, 60%, about three three out of five are going to break up. And out of third marriages, 73% break up. Now, I don't know what you make of those statistics, but one of the things I figured out is I better keep working on my first one because it gets harder and harder as you go along. But nevertheless, whatever statistics you look at, the fact of the matter is we are living in America in a divorce culture. It's getting harder and harder to keep marriages together for some reason, and I want to talk about that. But first we will begin, as we should always begin, with Scripture. In Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test Him, and they asked Him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now, I want you to notice how contemporary that sounds because people get to divorce today for any reason and every reason and no reason at all. And they had the very same problem back then. They had a religious controversy over when you can divorce your mate. And Jesus does an interesting thing. He doesn't exactly answer their question, at least not at first. The question, if you were paying close attention, is about divorce. The answer is about marriage. Jesus says, haven't you read, which is always a good introduction, we always need to go back to the Word of God when we're going to discuss an issue like this. So he points them back to the Genesis account. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, 
Pay close attention to what our Lord is doing. The Pharisees come to test him, to ask him a question about divorce, and their question is essentially, when can I get rid of my wife? When can I bail out of my marriage? When can I divorce? Before Jesus will even touch that question, he first wants to talk about God's intention. He wants to talk about unity. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and two become one. Marriage is a bonding, a joining together, a partnership. And Jesus is underlining a truth that I want to underline this morning, and that is divorce is the opposite of God's intention. It is the exact opposite because divorce is a splitting apart, a breaking of promises, a tearing asunder of the bonds that form the family. And so before Jesus will even talk about divorce, he says, don't you understand what God intended? God made men. God made women. God made marriage for the two to come together. So we're not talking about gay marriage. We're talking about God's marriage. But he said, we're, we are talking about unity. God wants marriage to be a unity. Now, he goes on to say, so they are no longer two but one, and what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. I really want you to pay close attention to what Jesus says there when he says God joins us together. File that away because we're going to come back to it in just a minute here. But marriage is a sacred covenant involving three people, the husband, the wife, and God. God joins us together. We're no longer two, but one. And if I go into marriage with the attitude that it's all going to be about me, I'm not going to make it. I have never known two genuinely unselfish people to get a divorce. Never seen it happen. And that's what it takes to make marriage work. You have to be genuinely unselfish. Two have to become one, and me has to be transformed to we, and the focus has to be on the unity of the marriage. But they're not... But Jesus says when two become one, he's telling us that divorce is the opposite of God's intention, God's will, and of our responsibility. But they weren't content with that answer. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And there was provision in the law of Moses if a man found something unclean in his partner, if there was indecency, if there was infidelity. Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And listen again to Jesus. He brings us back to the beginning. Back to the beginning of creation. Back to the beginning of God's Word. And in a very real sense, back to the beginning of the marriage. I've done lots of weddings over the years, and almost every bride smiles, and almost every groom kisses the bride. They almost always start out on a good note. Everybody's happy and enjoying themselves. But something goes wrong along the way for some of them, and they end up in divorce. Jesus makes clear that divorce was a concession, not a command. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. And I tell you, listen to the Lord, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and commits another woman and marries another woman commits adultery. Marriage is sacred, not to be broken lightly. And he says, in the case of infidelity, a marriage can be ended because, and I, you know, I'm a marriage counselor, and I said yesterday, I'm a fairly good counselor with two people. I don't do very well with three. 
And I've worked with lots and lots of cases of infidelity, and I've been able to, by God's grace, help some couples get back together. But they're only able to get back together if there's repentance and a complete break with the third party. But when someone has a partner who is unfaithful, you can't maintain a marriage. And Jesus said, in that case, I permit divorce. Divorce, however, is the opposite of God's intention, of God's will and of our responsibility. He says, let man not separate. Now I want you to listen to what the prophet Malachi said because it shines some light on our subject for today. In Malachi chapter 2, the prophet Malachi, or rather God through the prophet Malachi, was condemning the people of his day because they were unfaithful to their marriage vows. And then they had experienced a lack of God's blessing. God had taken his hand the blessing off of them and they couldn't understand why. And in their mind, they weren't connecting their infidelity to their wives, to their marriage bonds, and God's lack of blessing. So God says to them, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because you no longer, he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why. And he says, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, the wife of your youth simply means the wife you married first when you were young, your first wife. And they weren't being faithful to their first wife because, listen, you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? Once again, we're talking about unity. In flesh and in spirit, they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Now, God's attitude toward divorce is not in question. God hates it. He doesn't hate divorced people, but he hates divorce because it means some marriage has died an unnatural death, and very often it means children are going to be consigned to living in a broken home, and almost always it means that someone hasn't fulfilled their wedding vows and been true to the promise they made. And then he says, so guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. Did you notice a phrase? that God uses through Malachi three times. Break faith, don't break faith, don't break faith. Now that's a significant phrase there, don't break faith. It tells me that divorce is the opposite of God's intention, of God's will and of our responsibility. When I work with couples and I help them prepare for marriage and I put them through their premarital sessions, I always say, do you realize that marriage is sacred? And here are the vows. It's going to be for richer, for poor, and sickness and health, better, for worse, till death do us part. And are you prepared to make that promise to each other? Because marriage vows are a sacred covenant. And I, I won't do a wedding until they assure me that that's their intention, that they're going to make it work for a life. There are four things that can imperil a marital partnership. And these are the exceptions that have to be dealt with if the unity of marriage is going to be maintained. The first will come as no surprise to those of you who were here yesterday morning, and that is abuse. It is hard to maintain the unity of marriage if somebody's being hurt, if somebody's being hit, if somebody's being threatened. 
And when I'm working with a couple and I know that there's abuse going on, I will not do marriage counseling until I first have worked with the abuser to stop the violence against the person. And I told some stories yesterday. Sometimes it's almost always the husband who's the violent one, but not always. Sometimes it's the wife. But that imperils the covenant of marriage. The second is addiction. My church has a very active recovery ministry, and it is almost impossible to hold a marriage together when somebody's under the influence of drugs or alcohol. It just doesn't work. And I've got to deal with the addiction before I can deal with the marriage. And we have converted an awful lot of folks from out of the world who didn't have any church background, and it's very few of them have an intact marriage. Very few of them. Uh, because by the time they get to us, they have been in addiction for so long that they had one old fella told me, uh, I was asking him about his family, and he looked kind of down at the floor and looked a little bit sad. He said, Brother Dan, he said, I drank my family away. And it just breaks your heart when you hear something like that. I drank my family away. The third crisis factor is abandonment. You can't make a marriage work if somebody's gone. They just pack up and they leave, and they're not willing to come back. The fourth one, though, is the one that I really want to talk about, and that is adultery. You may have heard Jesus say just a moment ago, that if your partner is unfaithful to you, God permits divorce. Now, there's a reason for that. Two's company and three's a crowd. You cannot have a marriage when there's ongoing infidelity in the relationship. There is a reason why. Thou shalt not commit adultery is part of the Ten Commandments. There's a reason why it's in there, because it is a fundamental breach of the fabric that makes life possible. Adultery is based upon selfishness, it's based upon stupidity, it's based upon deceit. And you cannot maintain a marriage when someone is unfaithful, when they're running around, when they're cheating, when they're sleeping with another person. But by the way, did you know that this sin is the only sin that's listed twice in the Ten Commandments? you ever notice that? you ever think about that? That number, the Seventh Commandment is you shall not commit adultery. The Tenth Commandment includes you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It is so, such a serious sin that it's included twice in the Ten Commandments. A little child was in Bible class and they were memorizing the Ten Commandments and she got to the Tenth one there and she said you shall not pull the covers off your neighbor's wife. And the teachers thought about that and started to correct her and said, no, that's close enough. Okay. <laughs> But it's in there twice. And there's a reason for that. Because adultery is such a destructive sin. It causes so much devastation. I had a very painful conversation just last week with a young man who'd left his wife and taken up. He's 35 years old, his wife's 36, and he took up with a 20-year-old, 22-year-old girl. Uh, he met at a play and run, was running around, and I looked him in the eyes, and I said, you have hurt so many people. You have caused so much de devastation. And he's going to be living with that for the next 30 or 40 years because they've got a little daughter. And he was totally unrepentant, so I had to hand him over to Satan, and I did so before I left. But it causes so much destruction. And here's what I need you to know. Adultery is not a referendum on the quality of the marriage being betrayed. Adultery is a character defect. It is a sin. I have learned through long experience with working with couples that when somebody gets infatuated 
with the third party, all of a sudden their marriage starts looking sour to them and they start finding fault in their marriage partner and it's not, just not what they want it to be. And that's the conversation I had with this young man. He, they had a perfectly good marriage until he met this little 22-year-old and then all of a sudden his wife wasn't suiting him anymore. And I told him, I said, son, that's not right. Adultery is very much like intoxication. When someone is under the influence of an affair, they're not thinking straight. And they're especially not thinking straight about their marriage. And so I have to kind of separate that out. And I will not listen to an adulterer run his or her mate down. I won't do it. Because they're under the influence of sin. I had a fellow come to my office years ago. And he wanted, my, wanted to ask me a scriptural question. I said, all right, what is it? He says, what is your opinion of what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage? Now, that's a loaded question. Now, I wasn't born yesterday, and I knew the question to ask. I didn't give him an answer. I asked him a question. I said, are you planning to divorce your wife? He said, well, yeah, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. I said, and then I knew the next question to ask. I said, well, are you involved with another woman? And he said, oh, no, Brother Dan, no, I'm not. I'm not involved with another woman. I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. That's good. And then I knew the next question to ask. I said, yeah, but if you happen to divorce your wife, do you have another woman lined up? Have you got one in mind? And he looked at the floor and looked kind of ashamed and said, well, yeah. And I said, well, before you listen to my opinion about divorce and remarriage, let's talk about fidelity in God's will. Because when someone gets under the influence of a third party, they're not thinking straight. It is, I have often likened adultery to a form of temporary insanity, and I've rarely been proven wrong, because when they sober up in the cold light of the next morning, things don't look quite the same. And so I'm here to give you a word of caution. If you get entangled with a third party, you're not going to think straight either, and you better listen to godly advice here. You have broken faith. You have broken faith. You have broken faith. In the presidential primaries just ended, we had an unusual spectacle that I think has been unparalleled. We had a presidential candidate who had divorced not one but two sick wives under the influence of an affair. And people have gotten to the point where there is literally no shame whatsoever. This is a matter of public record. This is not gossip. Newt Gingrich left his first wife when she was sick in bed with cancer to marry his mistress. About 15 years later, he left his mistress to marry his third wife that he'd been having an affair with six years. Newton Callista. And when I read the news reports of their marriage, and I want you to listen carefully to this, the news report said that his third wife that he had an affair with for six years and left his sick wife to marry, his third wife was very religious, a devout Catholic, and she converted her husband to the Catholic faith. And I had to read that twice. And I had to scratch my head over that one. Something is not right with that picture. Now, I'm not real bright, but I can tell you something's not right with that picture. People today don't see anything incompatible with being a mistress or an adulterer or in unfaithful and being devoutly religious. In fact, all the time they were having their affair, she was singing in the choir at church. Something's not right. 
How has our culture gotten so corrupt that we cannot even recognize the problem with adultery? And yet this is the man who ran for president of the United States. Thank goodness he didn't make it. By the way, here's the second most despised man in the country right now. You recognize him? I tell you, something about politicians, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's something about politicians. But John Edwards is the second most despised man in the country because he carried on an affair, got a wife, got a woman rather pregnant while his wife was dying of cancer, Elizabeth Edwards. And John Edwards, he, he lost his bid for president. He lost his bid for attorney general. He uh, nearly lost his freedom. He, he went through uh, a trial here a few months ago and just barely escaped that. And, and people just, and even his attorney said, I know my client has acted in a despicable way. I mean, this is the second most despised person in the country. And the Bible has this to say about John Edwards. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself, blows in disgrace or, disgrace or his lot, and his name, his shame will never be wiped away. I want you to think about that for a minute. Now, I said, by the way, I said this is the second most despised person in the country. Would you like to see the first? His former mistress, Riel Hunter, came out with a book in which she attempted to make a quick profit off her infidelity with a married man. And in her book, Riel Hunter, who had an affair with a married man, had the gall to trash his dead wife. She had the brazen nerve to run his dead wife down in her book in order to make a quick buck. And I don't know how you feel about that, but that makes my blood boil. And let me tell you what the Bible says about that. In Proverbs 30, verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats, she wipes her mouth, and she says, I've done nothing wrong. People have no shame. People have no shame in American culture whatsoever. And here's what I've learned over the years in counseling. I've learned to, how to translate double, divorce speak. There's a third, there's a second language. There's English and there's divorce speak. And when people come in and they want to complain about their marriage, I've figured out what these phrases mean. When they turn to their husband or the wife and they say, you're too controlling, a lot of times what it means is I don't want to get caught in my affair. When they come in my office and say, oh, you don't trust me, a lot of times what it means is I don't want to get caught in my affair. When they come in my office and say, I just need some space. What they're saying is, I don't want to get caught in my affair. When they come in my office and say, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, what they mean is, I've become emotionally infatuated with somebody else. When they come in my office and say, oh, I just need to get away to find myself, what they mean is, I've found someone else. When they say, our children deserve to have parents who are happy, what they really mean is, I'm happy in my adultery, and I don't care what it will do to my kids. People under the influence of adultery are temporarily insane. I had a woman come into my office several years ago. She was having an affair with a married man, and she asked my assistance and my advice. I said, well, what exactly is it you want me to do? She said, I want you to help me with my relationship with him and, and, and his family. I said, absolutely not. I said, I can't help you because God won't bless it. It's wrong, and his children are going to absolutely hate your guts. He had two teenage daughters. I said, if, you, if he divorces his wife and marries you, the marriage will not last. His child, God won't bless it, and his children will absolutely hate your guts. Two years later, she's back in my office. She says, I need your help. What do you need now? I need individual counseling because I'm going through a rough spot. Well, what's wrong with you? Well, my husband divorced me. Well, I said, well, why did he divorce you? She said, because 
our marriage was miserable and his two teenage daughters hated my guts. I said, I'm so sorry. I said, but I tried to help you and it's too late now. Because there's not a whole lot I can do by that point. People don't think down the road when they are under the influence of adultery. It was not this way from the beginning. Divorce is the opposite of God's intention, God's will, and of our responsibility. So let me give you some guidelines here, some positive guidelines, because I don't want anybody in this audience to experience this uh, sin here. I want to give you some guidelines to keep your marriage strong. Number one, if you want to stay married, be married. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean marriage is a partnership, and you need to work at it. If you were here yesterday, you heard me talk about you need to have some positives in your life. You need to have, we have the obligation. The Bible gives us the command. We've got to be good to our partner. Marriage doesn't just happen. You've got to make it happen. You've got to work to be a partner. We talked yesterday about the five love languages. We talked about how to show kindness and courtesy and consideration to your partner. You, you need to make your partner your best friend. You need to work at really enjoying each other and having a good time together. And sometimes, folks, we get in a rut. And particularly, by the way, let me say a special word to young parents. That's the hardest point of life. It really is. When you have young children, that's the greatest stress and strain on a marriage because they just suck all the energy out of a marriage. It's tough to raise good kids. If you do it right, it's hard work. Now, I raised two good boys, and I thank God for them. They're both strong, active, faithful Christians, good kids, have good jobs, and off my payroll. And I thank the Lord for all of them. They're good kids. And I loved every minute of raising those boys, and I'm glad it's over. Because it's hard work. If you raise good kids, it's hard work. But you've got to make some time for your marriage along the way. Be a partner to your partner. Don't put your marriage in jeopardy by being selfish or being isolated or alone. Be a partner to your partner. People always think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Have you noticed that? It always looks greener on the other side of the fence. And these two goats here, both of them are dissatisfied with their side, and so they're going to the other side. I got news for you. The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it and where you fertilize it. And if you're not happy with your marriage, well, you start working on it to make it good, to make it good. All right? Guideline number two, keep the protective boundaries of your marriage high. I talked about this yesterday. I'm going to talk about it again. You have got to protect your marriage because there's a lot of people in this world who don't care if you're wearing a ring or not. They don't care if you're married or not. The young man I talked to two weeks ago, the reason he got involved with a 22-year-old woman is because she sent him a, a text or a tweet and she said, I'm interested in you, now the ball's in your court. And Well, he just went wild. Just went, you know, got his ego boosted and he just went crazy. You have got to protect the boundaries of your marriage. Uh, some of you may have seen this in the news. There's a new anti-cheating ring. Any, do any of y'all see this in the news? An anti-cheating ring. You can buy an anti-cheating wedding band. And it has an imprint on the inside of the ring so that if a man wears it and he's out on a business trip and he sees a good-looking woman and he says, oh, I'm going to take my ring off. Well, it imprints on his finger. I'm married. So he can't just slip that ring off and get away with anything. It's there on his skin. It's like a brand on his van. 
Well, I appreciate the intention. But my gut feeling is that's not going to do the trick. That's not what's going to protect a marriage. What's going to protect a marriage is the commitment of both partners to be a partner to the other. Let me give you three guidelines to protect your marriage. Number one, no secrets. No secrets. And you you all know my opinion of Facebook if you were here yesterday, but if you're on Facebook and you get a message from an old girlfriend or a high school boyfriend and you don't tell your partner, you have already crossed over the line. In fact, just last week I had a couple in my office and he had been in touch with a, with a, a former partner. They weren't married, but he had a child by this partner out in California and hadn't heard from her in 25 years and his wife found the text on, or found the message on Facebook where they'd been talking with each other and he somehow forgot to tell his wife. And I looked him in the eye and said, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. The minute you say or do anything that you don't want your partner to know about, you have already, you may not have committed adultery, but you have been unfaithful to your partner because you're keeping secrets for them. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is no secrets. You be absolutely careful what you say and do on Facebook and email and text and Twitter and everything else. The second advice I'm going to give you is no secrets. If you're talking on the cell phone with somebody of the opposite sex, and you don't want your partner to know about it, and by the way, I have worked with probably five or six dozen couples who, where there's been an affair, and in almost every case, it doesn't start with sex, it starts with cell phones. And they're just talking away. They're just having a big time talking, 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 but they don't tell their marriage partner. So my second guideline is no secrets, and you probably already guessed the third, and that is no secrets. If you're meeting with somebody, if you're having intimate lunches, if you're talking about personal things, if you're complaining about your marriage partner to somebody of the opposite sex, you have crossed the line. Now, if you want to complain about your partner, you go to your partner. We talked about that yesterday, and you talk to them. If you're not happy in your marriage, you go to a marriage counselor or someone who can give you some godly advice, but you don't talk about your marriage with somebody of the opposite sex. That is a betrayal, and it is dangerous. That is a slippery slope, and a, many a person has slid down it and ended up someplace they didn't intend to be. Guideline number three, recognize the danger of pornography to your marriage. I cannot tell you how many marriages that I have seen personally break up because somebody, and by the way, it's not always the man, it usually is, but not always, is online getting involved with things that they don't need to be. And in my lesson on, on Friday night, I talked about the dark alleys of the Internet. Well, the Internet is breaking up a lot of marriages. So stay away from this. And the reason I tell you this is because Pornography is a mental rehearsal for infidelity. It is gradually breaking down the boundaries, the moral boundaries that keep the marriage safe. And so if it's a problem, you deal with it and take care of it. Guideline number four, don't cherish resentments. An awful lot of affairs begin with resentment. People get mad with their partner and they start grumbling and griping and start feeling sorry for themselves and they cherish resentment and bitterness and that leads to rationalization. 
And then somebody of the opposite sex shows a little bit of interest in them, and they say, well, my wife is, is not good to me, or my husband's not kind and considerate, and I'm mad at him, or I'm not happy with her. And it opens the door for the devil. And anytime you open the door for the devil, he's going to come right in. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold, because anger allows the devil to get his foot in the door of your marriage. If you have problems, and I talked about this in two sessions yesterday, solve them. Work on them. Work them out. But don't cherish bitterness and resentment because if you do, you're going to end up looking like this. And you're going to end up like them. You're going to end up split up. Guideline number five, be good to each other for your children's sake. Let me say that again. Be good to each other for your children's sake. What your children need most, and they need a lot of things, but what they need most is a dad and a mom that love each other. And if that means you have to get a babysitter and leave them alone, if that means you spend some time away from your children, if that means that they're not always the number one priority, then that's fine because they need a dad and a mom that love each other. And that's what they need, so give them that. Children need and deserve two parents who love each other. And then finally, guideline number six, never forget that God has joined you together because when we lose sight of God's place in our marriage, we're already on shaky ground. Never forget that God has joined you together. And how has God joined us together? Let me give you just some closing thoughts here. God joins us together, number one, by sanctifying the covenant of marriage. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God created marriage. It was his idea and God created marriage to be good. And my wife is one of the best things that ever happened to me, and I'm glad to tell anybody that. Uh, I, I would, I'm a better man and a bigger man because of my wife. And God, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, looked at Adam and said, well, I've made creation, I've made paradise, I've put man in it, but it's not enough. He needs a partner. God brings us together by sanctifying the covenant of marriage. Number two, God brings us together by providentially providing a partner. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 22, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. I have prayed, my wife and I have prayed every day for our boys, and one of the things we've prayed for them for years is that they'll find a good Christian wife. And our youngest son just got married a month ago, and I did the ceremony, and I thanked God in the middle of that ceremony for answering our prayers because God wants our children to have a good partner just as much as we do. God per, uh, brings us together by promoting the boundaries that protect marriage. Marriage should be honored by all, the Bible says in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. All of God's commands are good, but this is a command that protects marriages and protects homes. And finally, well, two more. God joins us together by giving us a common faith that enriches our life together. We are joint heirs, the Bible says, of the gift of life in order that our prayers will be not hindered. And I said yesterday in my presentation, it really is true. Study after study has found that the family that prays together does what? Stays. It really is true. 
It really is true. If you want to protect your marriage, you be active in your faith with your marriage partner. And finally, and this one's important, God joins us together by saving us, sanctifying us, and making us fit to live with. Do you realize that's what one of the things God wants to do when He sanctifies us? One of the reasons we come to church, we study, one of the reasons God gives us His Holy Spirit is because He is creating us into the kind of people that somebody can live with. The Bible says, be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on a new self. And when God gives me a command, God is trying to shape and to mold my character into being the kind of person that can be a partner to my wife. And I thank God that He saved me. I thank God that He sanctified me. And I thank God that He's given me a good marriage.